from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded Thursday, April 11th, 2019. This is episode 99. My memory is beyond the event horizon. Welcome to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I'm Jason Snell, your host, and joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Jason. It's episode 99. 99. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Luftballons. That's a song from when I was a teenager. Okay. 99 red balloons. Go. Bye. Anyway, uh, we are going to talk about uh, the top stories of the week as we uh, as we see fit, as we choose, because we're the host of the show, so we choose. And then we're going to be joined by Shelley Brisbane, who is a host of Parallel right here on Relay FM and has written a book about accessibility. And we are going to talk to her about some other interesting stories that she helped us choose. Uh, but first, we should probably get to our choices for the top stories of the week. And I want to start, Stephen, with the story that uh, has shaken me to my core which is the fact that uh, one of the ways they get voice assistants to understand what you're saying more effectively is that some amount of those uh, commands that you give are then uh, listened to by people who Mm -hmm. do things with them. And it makes perfect sense from a kind of like training the machine scenario, but it still gives me the creeps. So Bloomberg wrote a story that... um, has an interesting headline, which is uh, Amazon workers are listening to what you tell Alexa, which is a little, little bit, uh, a little cl- clickbaity, a little, little bit. I think the original story was: Is anyone listening to you on Alexa? Uh, the answer is yes. So there, there. Uh, this is not just for Alexa, though. This is also for things like Siri, um, where these technology companies take a, a a sample of stuff, and I don't know whether it's random or whether there are certain um, reactions or behaviors that make them kind of kick that that audio and say this should be analyzed by somebody. But then there are teams of people who spend all day listening to other people's audio and uh, marking it up and using it for training. And then also apparently like sharing it with each other in chat rooms if they hear something funny, which was a detail that I um, didn't appreciate. Don't like that. Don't, don't right. like that at all. Right. And I think this is one of those things I don't, I, I haven't, um, I don't know if I've read the fine print. I'm sure there's something in here about in the fine print of the Amazon echo and of Siri about this, but this is one of those things that strikes me as being, um, it's, it, it bothers me. And I don't, I mean, there's an argument to be made that, uh, look, you've got a device that's listening to you. Why is it? Why is this the part that bothers you? But like, there's a difference between some dumb algorithm processing my audio and throwing it away, and some dumb algorithm processing my audio and then maybe sending it off to be listened to by a random team somewhere, regardless of of that they're using it to improve my experience, um, without maybe a very clear opt-in i'm thinking of like when you start uh uh, when you restore a backup on an iphone or start a new iphone you have a couple of those opt-in moments where you're like would you like to share information with apple would you like to share information with developers and for all i know that's how the siri stuff works is if you say no then it doesn't get shared i don't i don't know that fact but i don't know for me as strange as it is this seems this 
knowledge crosses a line for me that maybe I should have known this line was already crossed. I will admit that. But for me, I, I, I do, I listen to this and I think my initial thought was, ah, maybe I need to just go unplug all of my echoes now. I think it's really important that Amazon, Apple, these other companies disclose exactly how this works and give consumers the a checkbox to say, you know what? I don't want my recordings to be listened to by a human being to improve your processes, right? Like this has to be disclosed in a clear way. And my guess is, is now that this article is out, if it's true that this is something that we will see. I agree with you that I don't like this. I understand why they're doing it though, but sure. doing it without without telling people in clear English is is just not good. Yeah, right. Not I mean, I, I feel like the and again, I, I know there are people out there who are who are have always been against these things saying, well, you know, hey, dummy, <laughs> this was already a uh, an obvious thing that was happening or you're, you know, you, you should have known this all along, that kind of thing. But I don't know. I think there is definitely a difference be- between the assumption of uh, we don't keep your data, we process it. Uh, we fire off a response and then we throw it away. Um, Amazon does let you listen to back to what you said, like later for some period of time, but like, that's something that you can see. And, uh, you know, ideally you'd be able to turn that off. But I, I, I think the reasonable assumption with these devices is not that there are teams of people listening to random samples of them. I think a reasonable assumption is that, uh, they're being processed in the cloud and thrown away. And if that's Mm -hmm. not true, then uh, you need to be very clear about that. And ideally, you need to give consumers the option, either the option to turn that off, or really, ideally, you have to ask them to opt in to improve the service. And people will opt in to improve the service. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you can just take a random sample of audio from somebody's home. And the the story says they have heard potential assaults. They have heard accidental activations. They have heard funny things that they end up sharing with their co-workers which is also like mm, not great it reminds me of that story casey newton did at the verge about the people viewing facebook content that gets flagged and cl- my guess is that this content people are hearing is is far less traumatic than what those poor souls who are hired by a company to work for facebook see every day but there's also that element to this right this article talks about uh if people are upset you know the the tools they have at their disposal to get help. And this is a really ugly side of all this technology that I think a lot of people were not aware of until these stories started popping up in the last six months or so. But it's horrifying. It's really concerning to think about people listening to this stuff from a privacy perspective, but also what it's doing to those individuals as human beings themselves. Like on both sides of the coin, it's it's bad. Yeah. And this story suggests that um, when they've heard things that they are concerned about that they think might be a crime being committed, that the, that some of these employees have asked about it. And the story says that they were told, that they say they were told that there's nothing they can do, uh, which is weird. And the way it was phrased is sort of like maybe what they don't want to do is admit that they have this audio. <laughs> so like, let's just keep it quiet. Uh, and then Amazon made a statement, I think to Bloomberg saying, Oh no, uh, we have a policy about that. And that's not our policy, which is really weird. Cause that is counter to what this employee says that they were told, but that's troubling as well. Right. The idea that if you did hear 
So, okay. So I don't like that you're giving my audio to human beings to listen to, but if human beings are getting audio and they hear a crime, should there not be some process there to, uh, to, to do that? I don't know. It, it, it's weird all around. It's just super weird all around. And I get that there may be a technical argument that you just have to do this in order to categorize the stuff to improve the experience, but it should be upfront opt in from the perspective of the user, right? Would you like to help us? Some anonymized audio files not connected to your Amazon ID will be, you might be sent somewhere for analysis. Uh, we won't keep them for longer than three months and it will never be tied back to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, instead of just doing it. I think, I think you're right. I think a policy change is inevitable here. Absolutely. Because of this story being reported. Mm-hmm. Um, so Netflix did something super weird this week, which is that it pulled support for AirPlay out of the Netflix app on iOS. So you can no longer play something from your iPad or iPhone directly onto um, like an Apple TV. Well, and they say because it's not just the Apple TV that's out there now. Uh, Apple has slowly Hmm. been allowing other device makers to receive AirPlay 2 streams, including a bunch of TVs that we talked about like back when CES was in the news. And so so Netflix is saying basically, because we can't tell what we're being AirPlayed to, we don't know what the receiving end of this is. Uh, This is using their language now. There's no way for us to distinguish between devices and certify these experiences. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, uh, you know, we can't, say that the quality we want is being met so we're going to pull it yeah the problem i have with it is that the way they claimed this was they said due to technical limitations and i'm sorry i can't find a single well okay i i I don't think you can call it technical limitations this is a policy issue this is that netflix because because fundamentally airplay will work it did work it can work they pulled the feature because they don't like how it's working that's not quite a technical limitation the only way and and this is probably how they meant it the only way that you could call this a technical limitation is to sort of throw apple under the bus and say the technical limitation is that airplay 2 doesn't tell us what the device is that i'm playing to and we want we need to know that we've and they, they don't need to know it they want to know it. And it is the difference between wanting and needing. Like Netflix wants more information. And maybe they want it for good reason. They want to build, you know, uh, different profiles, different data download profiles based on knowing where something's being airplayed to. And knowing that if it's a 4K TV, they're going to do something different than if it's a 1080 TV or a 720 TV or whatever it is. Although I think AirPlay 2 is only going to work with 4K TVs or external boxes. I mean, there's complication here. It sounds to me like uh, Netflix asked Apple for a feature in AirPlay 2 that Apple ignored, and they're they're kind of taking their ball and going home. Um, mm-hmm. the The problem is that um, this has fallout because for a lot of people really preferred to do Netflix via AirPlay instead of running it on the app, and there are a few reasons for that, like pre downloading um, shows. And then and then beaming them rather than having them stream. Um, if you're far away from a good internet connection, for example, um, the the iPad will let you do interactive TV that the um, 
that the the Apple TV app won't let you do. I don't know. There there are some reasons. It's just it's a very weird thing for them to decide to take their ball and go home. That it's so important for them apparently to know why. And I do believe that that's why. I don't believe this is just a power move to anger Apple because Netflix and Apple have issues. I don't think that's it. I think this is Netflix having a policy of we need to know everything about everything and Apple saying, Meh, this is Airplay Land. We we don't let you do that. And it comes on the heels of uh, Netflix basically saying we we are not in Apple's new video service and we don't want to be, right? It's like true. Ne- Netflix wants to control the experience end to end. And they're just not willing to play ball with anybody yeah, else. But and it's not like they're not on Apple's platforms. That's the funny thing. They don't want to be de-aggregated into the TV app, right? They exactly. want, I'm going to go watch Netflix. So I'm going to tap that or, or go to that, that logo. I want to, they want to have the experience around the video playback and they don't want their content side by side with content from places like Hulu or CBS All Access or Disney Plus or right. whatever it may be. And I, I just wonder how this is going to play Long term, Netflix is only gaining new competitors, right? Everyone's got a streaming service coming out this year. And can Netflix, even though it is the biggest player now, and I imagine it will stay that way for a long time, can they forever be independent and let everyone else play together? Or at some point, do they have to get along to to stay relevant? I just I, That's not a question for anytime soon, but it's something to think about long term, I think. Yeah, I think so. I just, it is one of those things where uh, this whole situation is, is a, I'm sorry, unfortunately, this is against our policy and there's nothing we can do. Yeah, and the answer technical. is, you could change your policy. You, you, yeah. <laughs> you literally, you could, you could change. This is the same thing where people argue like, well, Apple can't change uh, the terms of how it does like cuts of in-app purchases with certain companies inside, uh, you know, the app store, because if it did that, that would be against its policy. It's like, well, they just changed their policy. That's it's like, no, it's not. It's not true. Well, this rule can't be broken, but because uh, who would who would change that rule? Oh, oh me? Mm-hmm. I can I can change the rules. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, our, our hands are tied. Yeah, by by, us. Our, by ourselves. I have the key right here to unlock these handcuffs. <laughs> but sorry, handcuffed. Um, our friends Steve Trouton Smith and Guillermo Rambo have reported that. Our old buddy iTunes mm-hmm. is, I, I don't want to say on its last legs, because I think iTunes will be with us for a long time, whether we like it or not, but headed for, um, if not a farm upstate, for a utilities folder near you. Yeah, I don't think this should be super surprising to anyone. With Marzipan, I, uh, with iOS apps coming to the Mac, it only seems inevitable that Apple would bring apps like music and podcast to the Mac right. to not necessarily replace iTunes outright. Uh, we spoke about this on Connected yesterday, but I firmly believe that the music app as we know it on the iPad today is basically what we're going to have on the Mac in the fall. This is not going to be a full one-for-one feature replacement of iTunes. Some of those features yeah. are just going to slowly die. and people are going to be sad for a while, then they're going to forget and we'll move on. But Apple has these apps. Why not? Why not move them over? I mean, th- this has been the, a very clear strategy for Apple for a long time. Is they've been building iOS apps that are um, not iTunes, that are 
individual apps that do things that got all rolled together in iTunes. And that includes Apple Music Playback and it includes podcasts and it includes video content with the TV app. And Apple's already announced that the TV app is coming to the Mac. And Apple has announced that technology that lets iOS apps come to the Mac is going to be shipping in the fall. It's already, uh, uh, there's a first version of it in macOS Mojave, but it's going to be shipping for developers in the fall. It's presumably going to be much more advanced. Presumably Apple is using that technology to bring the TV app to iOS. It's very hard not to look at that and say that the podcast app and the music app would also come over. And what Steve Trotton Smith and Guillermo Rambo um, say they've independently confirmed, and they're not saying how, um, but there's something that they've seen or heard that says that this is definitely going to happen. And uh, I agree with you. I would not be shocked if the music app running on the Mac... um, has they may advance it there may be some new features but it's not going to be itunes i I think in Mm -hmm. the long run viewing the music app as a um apple music front end period is probably the right way to do it um at some point they uh, they they're going to have to create a way for you to do well they don't have to at some point it wouldn't shock me if they do a way to do like um itunes match and itunes in the cloud on the Mac, at least, because that is a feature that they offer, and it's how you get right. your old purchased music in. Um, and right or now, ripped, or ripped music, or you know, um, we spoke about this too. If you rip audio from a concert or something, or and you, you download, want it, you buy a, an album on Bandcamp or something that's not even available sure. in Apple Music, and you get a zip file. Which on on the on, and they they actually say like, don't download this on iOS; it doesn't work, right? Like to yeah. have the ability to do that on an iPad too would be great to just point at some files and say, can you put these in my Apple Music account? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I think that'll happen, but it's not going to be iTunes as we know it. iTunes, uh, John Syracuse and I talked about on Upgrade this week, so we're just calling out all the podcasts here. Um, the the fate when i say it's sent to a utility folder upstate like it's the fate of quicktime 7 on the mac which was a technology that was it, it was an app that was much more capable than quicktime 10 that replaced it um, but it did it, it uh was old and dying and will go away this fall so what apple did is they kept it around but it got moved you know off to the side and apple does that with old tech i would imagine it'll do that with itunes where it'll be like you can find itunes it'll either be installed or you can download it it'll be off on the side but for uh, most Mac users, what they're going to advise you to do is, here's a podcast app, here's the music app, here's the TV app, you use those now. And I think that's, in the long run, I think that's good. As somebody who listens to music on iTunes on my Mac every single day, I'm a little bit skeptical because I don't love the iPad interface for music. I feel like the music app needs a better large screen interface. That's why I'm a little optimistic that they may actually use this to do a better music interface for both the Mac and the iPad, because right now the music app feels very much like an iPhone app that just got slapped on the iPad. It does. And it's not very good. So I have have some hope that they might improve that a little bit because they know that they're going to push that onto the Mac and uh, that the iPad will also benefit. But, um, you know, I, I, I use iOS music app all the time and it's fine. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I think it's time, though. I think it's way past time. I think iTunes really should have died a long time ago. But Marzipan is the technology that allows Apple to not um, rewrite their apps for the Mac when at a time when they don't want to invest that kind of resource in developing apps that are just on the Mac. And uh, Mac users get the latest and greatest, and it means that the development teams going forward just have to work on one set of apps, and Mac users get it, as well as iOS users, which ultimately is better for Mac users, right? Like, having 100% of Apple's resources on app of choice, whatever it is, 
uh, benefit you because you're on the unified app platform, I think is better than how it's been, which is that they aren't basically aren't paying attention to Mac users. Mm hmm. It's good for users and it's good for, I think, in particular, the iPad, right? That it, it can become more powerful as time goes on. Yeah. So we'll see. It's going it's to be a big, dramatic set of changes, I think, coming to the Mac uh, this fall. Uh, and we'll get our first glimpse in June of that. One more before we go. Um, there's a new Kindle. A new Kindle has arrived. And they do that. I mean sometimes. that literally. They just just splurt them out. I have them all with me because i'm going to update my story on six colors about like what kindle you should buy uh and i wanted and i didn't have any of the the uh current like kindle paperwhite and kindle so i bought them and i have them now with me oh yeah here so there's a new kindle it's the cheap kindle um and the cheap kindle has come a long way it's got backlighting now it lights itself it's amazing front side lighting side lighting yeah it's it's not really backlighting technically thank you you just uh well actually there but yes, saved us a lot of tweets. We have a lot of tweets. Uh, yeah, it's it's little LEDs that are on the sides, and it, it but it, it lights mm-hmm. itself. Let's put it that way. It lights itself, which it didn't. The cheap Kindle you would still, if you wanted to read it at night, have to like clip a book light on it, like the old Kindles uh, from the early days. And it's just that's savagery. It's awful. Um, I'm I'm so glad that they have brought that to every device now. Um, so mm-hmm. it's you know it's it's uh, ninety dollars, which I'm a little. I gotta say, I thought by by the year 2019, Amazon would be selling Kindles for almost nothing and making it up on um, locking it into their ebook ecosystem and selling you ebooks. So I'm a little surprised that they've decided or that like prime members would get it for super cheap or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I don't know if it's a profit center for them as much as it is that they want to, they don't want to give away, they don't want to take them at a loss because then everybody will get one. But I'm a little surprised that, that the entry level for the Kindle in 2019 is 90 for this thing and not 50 or 30 or something like that. Yeah. So you have this one at 90, the paper white is 130 130. and then the Oasis is 250. Yeah. That's a big jump. Yep. And, uh, you know, reading these reviews, I still think the Paperwhite is probably the one to get. Yeah, I agree. The screen is way higher resolution. Yep. So the text is going to look a lot better and the lighting is going to be more consistent. Mm-hmm. And I think the price between them, if you're going to use it a lot, it's probably worth the jump up. I agree. Um, I always used to say, so our friend Casey Liss always talked about, like, he doesn't doesn't use a Kindle very often, but they would take it to the beach or something. And mm-hmm. and and I always have said the Paperwhite is a better buy than the cheap Kindle. But the cheap Kindle, you could argue if you're only taking it to the beach or whatever, um, at least now you could also read it at night and not just in, in the light of day. Um uh, you know, I can see it if you if you don't use it that often and you just one that's totally disposable. Um, you know, it's still ninety bucks though, and you get a much better product for one hundred and thirty bucks. Like the the ninety Kindle, yeah, the lighting is not great. It's okay. Um, it's a little uneven, but it's it's not a big deal. It's fine. Uh, the plastic feels cheap. It's small. The screen is low resolution and lower contrast. I found at least in my you know using it over the last day i think it's also the blacks are not as black it's just not as good a screen but again if you don't if you literally are thinking i don't even want a kindle but maybe i would get one for occasional use i guess that's why it's there also if you like if you do go to the beach or the pool or read in the bathtub or something like that the 90 dollars kindle is not waterproof and the 130 dollars mm-hmm. kindle paperwhite is waterproof so there are lots of reasons. I, I think the Paperwhite is still the best Kindle for 
the masses and that uh the 90 dollar kindle really is like for people who are not convinced that the kindle is for them or are only going to use it occasionally and it doesn't need to you know it doesn't need to be good it just needs to exist and it is a way better kindle than um than the old cheap kindle is because it it lights itself and you can read it in bad lighting conditions um because that's a huge thing that that changes everything if it doesn't matter what the room lighting is and you can still read your book clearly it's a really good sign i should also mention it's got the recessed screen like the old paperwhite had and that recessed screen so there's a bezel and then below it is the screen um that is a lint collector and a crumb collector and you get like little pieces of lint that kind of go but in the corner of the screen next to the mm-hmm. it's not it's not nice so again another another reason to consider the 130 dollar version um and you mentioned the oasis you have one of those right i do because i'm some sort of kindle maniac yeah well i mean it's a lot more expensive it's like the cost of uh, you know two kindles <laughs> um it's really nice though i mean that is the thing about it is you're not you're not getting nothing by spending that i think the the oasis is for people who really love their kindles and they use them all the time and they want something really nice because it's got a metal back it's got a kind of like it's thin on one side but it's got a little grip it's got physical page turn buttons which i really love it is also waterproof the screen is as high resolution as the paper white which is we're talking about more than 300 dpi it's basically like a laser printer resolution it is uh, book resolution more or less um and uh it it's yeah and it's got a bigger screen so the Oasis, you've got a little bit bigger screen as well. So, um, yeah. So if you're, I mean, I love Kindles because they are unitaskers and because unlike my iPad, it's not going to push notifications at me and make me want to flip over to Twitter and all of that. And I read all of my books on the Kindle and I think Kindle, I'm glad it still exists. I'm glad that iPads and phones haven't just kicked the e-reader category out entirely because, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's a place for these devices and I, I really like that they're kind of calming. And this is w- when I go to bed at night, this is, uh, I read my Kindle before I go to bed. I don't have my iPad um, with, you know, all the internet shouting at me. I, I am just reading my book and I like it. Same. All right. Well, there's new Kindles now. Now you know. Now you know all about them. All right. Um, Shelly Brisbane is coming up and we're going to talk about Amazon and some of its interesting policy stances in, regarding uh, clean energy. And uh, we're also going to talk about accessibility. There are black holes. There is a fuzzy puppy that's not in a black hole. All of these things will happen. But first, I need to tell you about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Linode. With Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud, and you can get a server running in just seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node location. Linode has hundreds of thousands of customers. I am one of them, taken care of by a great 24-7 support team. If you ever run into any problems, and they don't happen very often, but occasionally a problem crops up, you get confused, you don't know what's going on, you just send them an email or give them a call or chat on IRC whatever is easiest for you, whatever suits you best. There are also a bunch of great guides, lots of good support documentation. If you need to look something up quickly, they've got a brand new management panel now in beta, cloud.lino.com. It's a single page application built using the cutting edge React.js stack backed entirely by a public API and it's open source. Plus, 
two-factor authentication to keep you and all your data safe and secure. Linode has pricing options to suit everyone. Their plans start at just one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. Amazing. And they offer high memory plans starting with 16 gigs of RAM. Of course, I have been using Linode for a few years now. One of the things I really like about Linode is basically my bill is the same every month. Sometimes I use a little too much data and there is a an overage rate. And so sometimes my bill is a little bit higher. Sometimes it's a little lower, but it's all within the ballpark. It's no surprises. And uh, that's because they do hourly billing. And so you can spin up an instance for a couple of hours, spin it back down. You pay a very small amount, like pennies, basically. Uh, And my entire business is on Linode. So that's important. I pay very little for a key piece of infrastructure because Linode is such a great deal. And they have a great offer for you too. Go to linode.com slash downloadfm and use the promo code downloadfm2019 when you check out. That's downloadfm2019. You'll get $20 toward any Linode plan. And if you do the math, that means it's four free months on their one gig of RAM plan. And there's a seven day money back guarantee too. So you have nothing to lose. Give it a try today. Linode.com slash downloadfm and promo code downloadfm2019 to learn more, sign up and make the most of that $20 credit. Thank you, Linode, for keeping all of my stuff on the internet and for supporting download okay now it's time to bring in our guest it is shelly brisbane who i worked with back in the day at mac user she's been on uh, this podcast before she's been on clockwise this week it's shelly week here at relay fm hello shelly Hi, I like Shelly Week. It's a fun week. It's, it's uh, I suppose at your at your house, it's always Shelly Week. I, true. I wish I had released one of my own shows this week. Then I could have done the trifecta, <sighs> oh, so to speak. But that will be next okay, week. See, so so it'll it'll just continue. That's all. Well, we're spreading the thank love. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. And uh, we asked you. This is a twist. We asked you if there were any topics this week that you were interested in talking about, and uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about them. And one of them is about Amazon and its commitment to um, renewable energy and accusations from Amazon employees about Amazon not working to make their uh, data centers uh, fueled by renewables instead of by oil. Um, There's a story about that that uh, we'll put in the show notes from Recode about how 3,500 Amazon employees tried to push uh, Amazon to do more um, more announcements of uh, pushing toward uh, using green energy. Um, Amazon has actually made this week, I believe, some uh, announcements about three new renewable energy projects that are intended to help power Amazon Web Services. There's also a story uh, that you passed on to us, Shelley, uh, from Gizmodo um, about Amazon and the fact that it is it has been sort of like not talking as much about renewable energy while also um, uh, cozying up to the fossil fuel industry and uh, making deals with companies like BP and Shell and Halliburton. And uh, I think there's an interesting... Uh, dichotomy there which is the you know is the issue here there are two issues right there's the issue of should you be um continuing to push your energy usage into renewables because most tech companies are doing that and then there's this other issue which seems to be more like why are you if you're so committed to green energy why are you also taking on 
oil companies as clients. Those feel really differently to me. But what? What? So what struck you about this story that you wanted to talk about it today? They actually feel real different to me as well. And I guess I was interested in the story because uh, in my day job, I work for a news show here in Texas where, uh, as you can imagine, fossil fuels are a subject we talk about yes. a lot because there's a lot of that industry here. We also talk about uh, wind. Uh, Jeff Bezos famously has some wind farms out in West Texas. Um, and so that's where I started. And then I dug into it. And I want, I want to start with the the activism on the part of the employees and kind of where that comes from. It's interesting because Amazon employees have not had the history of activism that, say, Google and Microsoft and even Facebook employees have had on climate change and other issues. And so it was interesting to see that the employees kind of stepped up and as shareholders are trying to fight the battle for what they see as Amazon's uh, broken promises to support renewables. So Amazon was kind of slow to make their data centers 100% renewable, which is what Apple and some other companies have done or promised to do. And they kind of got uh, hammered about that by Greenpeace and others. And so Amazon said, oh, all right, we'll work toward making our data centers 100% renewable compliant. And that's important because of the large amount of energy these enormous data centers use. And that's important because Amazon Amazon with AWS has extraordinarily large uh, data centers, and in Virginia particularly, where a lot of their infrastructure is concentrated. And so they promised, and according to what uh, Recode wrote, they have sort of backtracked on some of that. Uh, They are no longer talking so much about uh, renewables, although the day that the article came out, uh, that was when Amazon announced their recent uh, moves toward more renewable energy. And it does feel like that's it's not something that organically Amazon as a company feels drawn to. Uh, It feels like they they really want to do what is in their economic interest and that regardless of whatever impact climate change is going to have, they're going to be kicking and screaming to making their data centers 100% renewable. And as I say, I feel like that's really separate from the issue of them doing business with oil companies, which I'm happy to get into too. (laughs) But the renewable energy stuff is interesting and it it does make it feel as if they're very much out of sync with what other temp tech companies are doing and what they're signaling. I think that signaling part is important. I mean, obviously, there's some virtue signaling going on. Hey, we're 100% renewable. Companies like Microsoft and Facebook haven't gotten there yet. Apple and Google have, they say. Uh, but it, it is interesting, and it doesn't feel like Amazon is going to be a leader in, in climate. That's that's not something they're super interested in doing. It feels a little bit like there there was some something happened, right? Like that that's the interesting thing to me. Also, is that they made a lot of announcements about it, and then there was a long gap where they didn't talk about it, and now they've apparently made right. some announcements. So, what happened there? Did it turn out that it uh, it cost more than they wanted, or there were uh, you know other issues, or were there political issues, or was it just the fact that they were working on it in the background? That's also kind of interesting. Yeah, there's speculation that when the results of the 2016 election came along and uh, the current administration is uh, not pushing companies toward climate change-friendly policies, so to speak, that Amazon felt like, well, we don't have to push on the gas as much in order to comply <laughs> with <laughs> potential governor- government regulations. So there's part of that. I'm sure it was an electric car. They were pushing on the gas pedal. Yes, it was clearly. an electric car. Yeah. Right. That was totally unintentional. I should probably <laughs> take credit for it, but I won't. But the, uh, the, the issue of doing business with oil companies, I think for, for those for whom climate change is a an important political issue, this feels like the two are connected. I kind of don't. Um, and it has nothing to do with 
love or dislike for the fossil fuels industry. But I think Amazon as a business is going to seek vertical market access wherever it can. And that certainly includes oil and natural gas companies. And they're applying machine learning and automation and other technologies, as well as their giant server farms, to these industries. And I think even if Amazon was 100% on board with its own data center renewable uh, practices, I, I don't think it would be hypocritical or illogical for them to be doing business with with oil companies, because whatever virtues companies like to to tout for themselves, nobody says, you know what, I'm just not going to get into that business because I don't like it. It doesn't feel right. It's not environmentally friendly. Every company that takes some sort of virtuous stand has a business interest in doing it. And I think Amazon would clearly be in the same boat. So you, you can like it or you can not like that they're doing business with oil and gas companies, but it doesn't strike me as hypocritical on their part. Uh, we talked on the show about the idea of um, uh, Google employees, for example, saying that they didn't want their AI technology used in military contracts because they, they didn't think want their technology to be used to kill people, basically. And it, it, there is, I fear, a, a bit of a slippery slope here, which is, on the one hand, I understand uh, employees especially saying to their employer, do we really want to facilitate some industry that we don't like personally? So whether that's fossil fuel industry because they are helping put uh, carbon in the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas and it is or carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas and it is it is raising the uh, temperature of the earth and it's causing climate change and it's wreaking havoc and all these things and it's bad. Okay. Um, or I'm opposed to uh, having my technology help the military because I'm opposed to whether you're opposed to the military or you're opposed to uh, using your technology for weaponry or whatever it is. Um, or you could say, uh, like, should they should the tobacco industry industry not be able to spin up an AWS uh, server somewhere, an instance somewhere? Do you say, no, 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 we don't want to be in business with you for obvious reasons? And I, 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 I get it. And yet at the same time, part of me thinks there's a difference between saying we're going to mind our business and run it the right way and saying we're going to turn away any, any other client that fails a set of litmus tests that we've um, that we've set out. And the problem with that is there's a spectrum, right? And they're the ones that are kind of arguable, like, uh, like people disagree about this. And then the, one, the ones that are much more strongly like, no, 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 these, this industry is bad and we shouldn't be a part of it in any way. I, I just, I don't know. I feel like you do pass a, uh, you pass a border there where it's suddenly about the business that you take just as random clients coming in the door to run a server versus how you police your own business, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. And I think it doesn't come up very often, but the United States has a lot of conflicts with China, for example. A number of tech companies, Apple especially, have put a lot of their money and efforts on that country, on China, as a place where they want to do business, as well as where they make their products. But in theory, somebody who really objected to interconnectedness between the United States and China or who didn't want to see the Chinese economy prosper could say, well, Apple shouldn't make their products in that country or they shouldn't rely on China for that sort of business. That's entirely unrealistic, which is probably why that sort of conundrum hasn't been discussed. But it's the same kind of thing where if you 
as a company, if you as an employee of a company believe that your company has some sort of uh, virtuous position, and again, I'm, I'm using that in quotes because it depends on your point of view, I suppose, what is reasonable to expect that company to do? And also, what is your own, what is the reality versus your own perception of your company's uh, good citizenship? I think it's clear that these big companies, and in particular, the billionaires that own them, do have a level of responsibility when it comes to things like the environment that comes with their positions of power and wealth. And we've seen how that can be used for good. Like you look at the Gates Foundation and this push to make uh, the world a better place through the through this massive wealth. And that's not something that is easy to, to work our way through. But I think that, that a lot of people have that sense that guys like Jeff Bezos – have a responsibility through their company to do better, to do more. And, you know, we can't necessarily regulate them to do that. We can't say, uh, you know, we're not going to use your company because it's really hard to get away from the big five, right? Like there was that great series about trying to like go a week without using a product from Amazon or product from Apple or product from Microsoft. Like it's really hard to escape these companies and consumers can, try to vote with their dollars, but that's that's increasingly difficult to do. So I understand why these employees feel like this is the way, uh, maybe their only way they could be heard is to to write a letter like this. And, and I think it's great that they're doing it. And I think that we can apply pressure to companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, et cetera, to, to do better, to make, uh, make their impact on the environment. Uh, less and less. And so I, we need to hold Amazon accountable, but it's so hard to do that. It feels a little frustrating sometimes. Like, how could I, how could we get them to do it? I don't have the answer for that, but even having the discussion is, is a good first step. I do wonder if, uh, you know, imagine a world where Jeff Bezos is funding whether it's via Amazon or via his own personal fortune, a uh, an institute whose goal is to eliminate through any means necessary the use of fossil fuels. Um, and Jeff Bezos is also through Amazon using, you know, AWS has all the oil companies as his biggest clients. That's an interesting situation, right? Where it's like, yes, please yeah. pay us for our servers and uh, we will use that money to try and put you out of business. And that's a really weird thing where it's like the companies are like, do I really want to do this? And and uh, people could look at Amazon and say, well, you're being hypocritical because you want to put them out of business, but you're taking their money. Whereas they might say, well, we're taking their money, but we're also trying to put them out of business. And I, I, I just think it's a very complicated thing because, of course, somebody else might say, somebody in Texas, maybe Shelly, might say, look, there's going to be oil use is going to go down but there's going to be a need for it for the next few decades anyway and it's a it's not illegal to run an oil company and oil companies are often trying to rebrand as energy companies and also investing in other technology that is coming along and we can argue about whether that's greenwashing or whether they're serious about it because they're hedging against the the death of oil um either way it's a you know it's complicated and people are on different sides and i i just for some reason i feel like um there's the walk the walk part which is what we do as a company and there's the who we choose to do business with and that my gut feeling is the who you choose to do business with's got to be a a little more broad like not every customer i have has to agree with me 
Right. The scenario you describe sort of steps it up where there would be a direct conflict between Amazon or the owner of Amazon in trying to support policies that would put potential customers out of business. That's that's a little different than saying, uh, hey, we should use renewable energy. We've said we're going to do it and we should walk the walk and we should listen to what our employees say. And I'm I'm on that train. I probably would have signed that petition and, and gladly or used my shares in whatever way that that employee group wanted to do. Uh, and still, I think it's reasonable as long as Amazon is not participating in any uh, illegal or unethical activities with regard to fossil fuel companies. It's, it's still perfectly reasonable for them to seek p- the business of those companies. And as most people who uh, write about and talk about business ethics will tell you, as a, as a public company, they have that responsibility to go out and seek business wherever it is. Well, we will. I, I suspect we will continue talking about this topic. This seems to be a recurring topic. It's fascinating. Thank you, Shelley, for bringing it to our attention. Um, we have another topic to talk about with you. But first, I want to tell people about the story you might have missed, something that may have flown under your radar this week. Um, Stephen, I see some strike through in our document here. You yes. Did you cancel the story you might have missed this week? I'm just turning it into space story of the hmm, week. Okay. Because we've got to talk about this, and our space podcast is off next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't Good want to go two weeks. So this is a huge story. You couldn't be on the internet the last couple of days and not seen this. The first image of a black hole that's ever been created has been uh, has been unveiled. So you know, we can all picture what a black hole looks like. All of those are renderings based on the math and imagination. <laughs> and lots of them are just completely wrong and yes. made up by yeah. Hollywood or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, uh, oh, what's the name of the movie? This is embarrassing. The, the Black Hole? Please. No. <laughs> Interstellar? Yes. Interstellar. Okay. Not a things, documentary. Things that have a black hole in it, Stephen. That's the category. <laughs> really struggling. My memory is beyond the Event Horizon today. Mm. This was unveiled by the Event Horizon telescope team, which basically took a bunch of radio telescopes around the world and kind of used them in a big array to capture this data. And what has come out of this is an image of a massive, massive black hole uh, in the center of a galaxy called M87, which is 55 million light years from Earth. Good, Good ways away. Uh, when I say big, I mean it. This black hole is estimated to be 6.5 billion times more massive than our sun. Uh, there was a, a graphic floating around showing the distance that Voyager has flown, the spacecraft that's furthest away from Earth. It doesn't even cross this. Like It is, it is essentially gargantuan. And it's really uh, amazing to have this image. And if you can look at the, the image we have in the show notes, if somehow you haven't seen it, and what you are seeing in the orange is uh, energy and mass being heated up as it's pulled into orbit and then into the black hole. And you can't actually see a black hole. We can only see as far as, as the event horizon, which is the point of no return for all energy, including light. Black holes swallow light. That's what makes them so interesting. And this really proves out years and years of theoretical uh, work that now there's an image saying, yeah, this actually is what we've been talking about now for a really long time. This is a sort of a, a, a real things will never be the same kind of moment in terms of space science. Yeah, it's pretty great. I like the idea that they um, 
they did a very, you know, supercomputer kind of like estimate of what we'd look, what we'd see if we looked at it based on all the physics. And then they're like, but our, our, our image won't have this high resolution. So then they did the, like the fuzzy version of it Mm -hmm. and it looks almost exactly like the image that they put out there. So uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It is a validation of, um, uh, more than a hundred years of physics and, with a mm-hmm. whole bunch of points in 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 between. Uh, that's one of the coolest things about it. That black holes literally like it, it, they emerge from the math of of uh, relativity of Einstein's general relativity. And Einstein himself was like, hmm, yeah, I know that's in the math, but I it's it's just a weird function of the math that something like that couldn't actually exist. And then a few decades later. Um, I want to say was it Chandrasekhar, uh, the astronomer, who said, "No, this is a this is going to be an object that really exists when stars collapse." And it kind of went from there, and then it became kind of entered the popular imagination. And you know, I got that movie in my childhood called The Black Hole, which was uh, not that great. Uh, some people like it, and uh, and and now you know. But even with all the evidence we got, it wasn't direct observation until uh, yesterday. So that's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. Great story. And this team also says they are working on imagery of the black hole uh, at the center of our own galaxy. That image should follow at some point. This one was ready first. They didn't want to sit on it. They wanted to release it. Uh, and so there will be more from this Event Horizon telescope team in the future. Yeah, yeah. There's more to come, right? You get you get the strong sense. So Stephen and I get this on liftoff a lot when we're talking about space stuff. You get the strong sense that in the scientific community that there is actually more to come um, mm-hmm. that they're working on, but they can't talk about yet because the papers aren't written. And they were trying to image the black hole at the center of our own galaxy, so um, there will probably be more. But they wanted to get this out out there as soon as they could, so they did. Yeah. It's really exciting. It's super exciting, and I don't even have a space podcast. It's amazing. And there's all sorts of, if you read the sort of long articles, there's so much detail about how all the basic science and the collaboration aspects between the eight telescopes and an algorithm that made it possible to take all of the data and munch it together in a way, which is a technical term, by the way, mm-hmm. in order to get this you know, this thing, this image that we have now. I mean, all the, all the sort of theoretical and, and basic science advocacy that any of us who, who like technology and like science have ever done, it's, it feels like it's vindicated at that, this moment. Yeah, I wrote a, a, a little blog post that actually got passed around a lot, which is kind of weird because weird people come out of the internet and say strange things to you about it. But the on the computer side of this, um, at the press conference, the guy uh, who was talking about how they process the data said that it was five petabytes of data to generate this image. That's actually a simplification of what it was. It, it, it's the because um, they, they took a bunch of images of a couple of different locations. So it's a total of 15 petabytes of data, uh, 15,000 terabytes, an enormous amount. And uh, what they said was that is uh, scattered across um, between seven and nine, ten observatories. They kept adding observatories as they went. Uh, It was half a ton of hard drives uh, containing all this data scattered around the world. And then it needed to be taken... uh, to two different processing facilities, one in Germany and one in Massachusetts. And the most efficient way to get that data there was not to send it over the internet, but to uh, put those hard drives on planes and fly them where they needed to go. And I did the math of sort of like, what's the data rate of hard drives on an airplane? Uh, and if you've got petabytes of data, it's actually pretty good, <laughs> turns out, to uh, to just load your hard drives on a plane and fly it halfway around the world. Um, also, that they 
couldn't do some of the analysis of this uh, until they, the hard drives came back from the South Pole. And these observations were made in April, which means they actually had to wait through the Antarctic winter and then for it to come back around to Antarctic summer. And then they could fly the hard drives out. So they, they had to wait months to get um, some of this data back from one of their observatories, which is also kind of amazing. Um, but again, the internet at the South Pole is also very bad. So that was the best way to do it. Great story, Stephen. It's, they sort of formed the ultimate sneaker net, what I called it, it in my, in it my blog post. <laughs> it was the ultimate sneak, sneaker net. Well, I can't wait to see what the space story is next week, or maybe there won't be one. I don't know. Um, let's move on. Shelly, another topic that you wanted to talk about with us is something about uh, a, a, an issue close to your heart, accessibility. And uh, there was a, a post about a new feature that was turned on in uh, iOS involving uh, accessibility on the web called accessibility events. And then there was also a, uh, a tech note that Apple posted this week. So it sounds like there was a little bit of a controversy that maybe is not uh, as controversial as it initially seemed because uh, what Apple turned on is a developer feature. So it's on by default in one place and off by default in the other place. There's, there's a, a bigger issue here uh, that I think is more interesting than maybe all the details of this because I, I, until I read these uh, pieces, I didn't really think about the fact that there are a lot of people in the accessibility community who are concerned about alternate ways of interacting with devices who don't like the idea that there would be a special accessible mode that uh, a website could sort of say, oh, this person is uh, has is using some sort of accessibility device, and therefore we're going to send them an alternate version of our website. And I never really thought about it before, but uh, the argument is that that's basically uh, uh, a separate but equal kind of situation where instead of making your web page work for everybody, you take a group of the population and you just kind of shunt them off to another web page. Yeah, and, and that uh, also touches on one of the things that's a bit confusing about this issue because this is a web accessibility issue and a lot of people discussed it as a platform issue, as a device issue, whether the devices were detecting assistive technology that you were using a screen reader, for example. But this is actually much more about web accessibility. So without getting too much into the weeds, I, I want to back up because that the, the other issue that's interesting is the way people react to things and the way sometimes the way sometimes what companies do allows for those reactions to get out of control. So basically what happened is uh, there has been a feature buried deep, deep in Safari settings for a long time, which allows support for something called the accessibility object model. And this is a standards-based <laughs> thing that uh, Google and Apple and Mozilla are all working on and about which I plan to write and speak at length on a future parallel. I'm working on that right now. And this has been around for a while and nobody really knew about it or pay any, paid any attention. And the idea is it is a way for websites to better support people who are using accessibility tools without necessarily having to support the existing ARIA standards as precisely as they already do. So in other words, it would make it easier for developers. It's a, it's a, it's a way for developers to support accessibility users without having to do as much 
background work. And what happened with accessibility events is this is a toggle that was added in the accessibility settings under voiceover in iOS and also in macOS. And a lot of people jumped to the conclusion that what that meant was that Apple was, and developers by by extension, would be able to detect whether you, you were using a screen reader specifically. And that caused people to lose their ever-loving minds because it <laughs> is an issue among accessibility users who don't want who want to make the decision themselves whether they they disclose that they're using accessibility technology or not. And and I agree with that desire to be able to control that yourself and to have tools that support your use of those features without your having to say, hi, I'm a voiceover user, I'm a screen, you know, whatever. Um, and so people lost their minds. And then Apple, a little bit belatedly, because this happened, there were several posts, and I, I sent one to Jason that included a, a whole lot of uh, Twitter uh, commentary and other commentary from people who who I, who I actually know and respect. So if you read the link, it looks like people have lost their minds, and they have, but they're very smart people. They're people who, had they had more information to begin with, uh, would not have lost their minds because they're smart and they know that Apple is not creating some sort of underhanded means of collecting the names and addresses of screen reader users. That's that's not happening. But Apple didn't do a particularly good job in the release notes for iOS uh, 12.2 or for macOS of explaining what this new thing was. And when they realized that this controversy was happening, they basically put out a tech note that says, this is how you turn it off. And oh, by the way, having it on is not going to disclose your screen reader status. It's only going to provide developers with the ability to build stuff that supports this accessibility object model, which is still experimental. Accessibility object model isn't like a thing that's out there in the world that developers are using. It's the thing that's still being developed, and there are four phases of it, and there's a very awesome dry technical document that you can read if you want to know about those. (laughs) Um, But I do feel like it's a situation where, I mean, people who use accessibility features are used to companies either not taking them into account or to or doing so without providing them full information. And that runs up against, even though Apple has this great reputation as a company that provides accessibility for its users, the two things come together, Apple's sort of secretive way of doing things and uh, people's mistrust of big company support for accessibility. So it was just kind of a cluster. And the the thing that surprised me most, I guess, is that, like I say, people who I really respect and who know way more than me about the innards of web accessibility sort of got bitten by this. And I I have some criticism for Apple there because I feel like they could have done a little better job. Uh, but it, it's going to end up being nothing. Uh, but the interesting thing to me is that I've, I've been interested in accessibility object model for a while, but haven't uh, gotten off my butt to uh, explain it to the wider world. And I feel like uh, this, if anything else, is going to put that on the lips of more people who care about this stuff, wondering what that is. And that's going to end up being a good thing. Yeah, Apple's lack of communication here, like, it's striking because they do have such a good reputation in terms of caring about uh, having accessibility on their devices. And this seems to have taken everybody by surprise. And I wonder, because the tech note indicates that it basically doesn't do anything unless you toggle a developer feature on, if they just kind of figured like they could do this and nobody, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because it's not on but it looks like it's on and people took it the wrong way. And it's one of those things where it's just kind of a stumble. Like this could have been communicated better. If the developer feature has to be turned on, then why is the other feature 
visible? Why is it turned on <laughs> if it doesn't do anything? It's in a weird place in the interface, too. It hangs out at the bottom of voiceover settings, and now there's this thing that says web, which has never been there before. And so, of course, everybody wanted to go in there. What is this? Accessibility events. And even the description underneath it is unclear. Right. But people people absolutely jumped to conclusions. But what are you going to do? You know, the, the Internet is, has is friendly, plenty of free pixels out there, so you can just jump to conclusions <laughs> and write them to your heart's content on Twitter. And, just uh, put them on a know. hard drive and, and put yeah. them on a plane. <laughs> exactly. And, <Right>. exactly. <laughs> it'll, it'll get taken to wherever it needs to go. Well, I mean, I think there's an interesting lesson here for people like me who are not part of the accessibility community. Um, I think it's really interesting about the important uh, importance of communication is one, but also this idea that... Um, like what are the default settings and and the idea that um strong there's strong pushback here that's a strong argument that this is something that should be chosen by the user um where i think you know i could see somebody saying well no why don't we just make it available by default if if we can sense if you're using assistive technology and isn't that more convenient for the user and uh, a lot of these accessibility advocates are saying actually no we don't want that that leads <laughs> or I think maybe the the best way to say it would be in an ideal world, yes, but <laughs> we don't live in that world. This leads to problems. We've seen these kind of problems before. And that's something that I had never considered is the idea, which is funny because as a an iPad user, I've actually dealt with something very similar. All of us iPad users have dealt with the fact when we get post uh, pushed to a simplified mobile version of a website because we're on an ipad and there's a moment of like no 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 i'm on an ipad it's fancy it's got processors and a big screen and it's all zippy um why are you giving me this thing and the answer is that a web developer decided that if you are a certain kind of device that you get the watered down uh you know poor version of the thing that they want to consume and i i I was thinking about that while i was reading this article because i was like oh i see why you wouldn't want this is because um we all know what happens with those alternate views of a website they're often not the website and they're broken and uh and it's it's a good lesson to be learned i hope that somebody inside apple has taken this and been like oh yeah we didn't do this we didn't roll this out in the right order we didn't communicate this right I hope. I, I have reason to believe that some folks got that message. <laughs> right. <Good. laughs> okay. And it didn't involve me knocking on any doors. It's just a feeling I have. Mm, that's right. It's a scent. You're sensing out there. Maybe a black hole was involved in providing. I'm just trying to tie everything together. Well, uh, thank you for bringing up this issue. I think it's really interesting. And I'm glad that uh, as we were discussing this, there was just that sort of one post where, as you said, everybody's kind of losing their minds. And then there was the Apple Tech Note. And it's like, okay, it's not... You know, there's some reassurances going on that there's more going on behind the scenes here. But I think, you know, accessibility is an important issue. It's something that that um, everybody who makes websites should think about. It's something that everybody who makes operating systems should think about. And I feel like, I mean, what's your sense as somebody who has been um, dealing with accessibility and technology for a very long time? And I should mention that you have a book that people can uh, buy about this topic. We'll put a link in the show notes called iOS Access for All. Do you feel like there's been it seems from the outside that there's been tremendous progress in terms of accessibility technologies in the last 20 years that it seems to be something that everybody actually talks about now uh whereas before it was almost like hidden and sometimes an afterthought but that's me on the outside do do you feel that there's been a lot of progress so if your event horizon is 20 years see Mm. what he did there uh if your event horizon is 20 years that's absolutely the case and i think uh, where apple's concerned it's been 15 because if you go back further than that there were some bad old days um i feel like there is 
a little it, there's actually competition going on which is interesting because now you see companies like Microsoft and Google actually taking Apple's lead and saying, oh, we need to do this too, because Apple became the incumbent. And there are some who deal with specific bugs that think Apple is resting on its laurels, particularly in macOS. But what I feel like is that Microsoft and Google, and especially Microsoft in the past few years, you can't, you can't go back 20 years. You have to talk about the past five years, really. Uh, Microsoft has really just come on strong. And I think with doing what Apple did, because what Apple did that was revolutionary was they made the accessibility built in. There was all sorts of accessibility bolt-ons for phones and for computers from other companies, especially in the Windows environment. And Apple said, hey, let's just put this inside and let's do some innovative things with it. And Microsoft finally, belatedly, and very well got that message. All right. Well, um, glad we got a chance to talk about it. Um, I do have one more story before we go. And this is very exciting because it's the Fuzzy Puppy update. Although I feel like with black holes and, uh, well, okay, with black holes, what do we need to to uh, to make people cheer up? Aren't black holes cheery? Okay, maybe not. Here's Depends a Fuzzy Puppy update. how close update. you are, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you get too close to a black hole. It's not so cheery. Um, although I hear that there's one position that if you could survive at that position near the black hole, which you can't, you would, uh, if you looked out, you would see the back of your own head because the light curves all the way around mm. the black hole and or comes right back around. the inside of your daughter's bookcase. Spoiler mm. alert. Uh, okay, so here we go. <laughs> yes, for that movie whose title may or may then not... I- Cannot remember. Uh, Fuzzy Puppy Update suggested this time by panelist Carolina Milanese, who tweeted at me with this story. The problem is that uh, it's not a problem that Carolina is Italian. The problem is that the story happened in Italy and all the news stories that I found about it are in Italian. But there's a video of it. It is adorable. There was a Rottweiler. It was lost in the countryside and it got stuck between these uh, rusty bars of a gate, uh, not in its home, apparently. And it had been there for a while. And uh, there were a bunch of bike riders. They were doing a... uh, they were doing a uh, a ride for this bike team, um, and they saw the dog, and so they they uh, went over and they uh, basically found like a metal bar and they and they pried two of the bars wider so that the dog could escape. They had to calm the do- dog down first; it was really upset and barking and stuff. And then they gave it water. And in the video, you can see it's like, oh oh, these people are nice. I'm very thirsty in the hot sun, and I'm trapped a trapped dog. And then they they sprung the dog, and then uh, the dog was very happy and around in the grass and uh and uh i think knocked over some bicycles and stuff but basically was uh loved the bike riders after after doing that and then the bike uh the dog has now found a home so congratulations to the cyclist team who uh saw the dog being trapped and uh and saved him and thank you to panelist carolina for uh teaching me basically how to use google translate but we'll put some links in the show notes you can watch the video and uh, read a translated italian story or if you speak italian you read the original story that's probably better i think anyway good job bicyclists uh, saving that dog and that's the fuzzy puppy update uh shelly brisbane thank you so much for being here where can people find you on the internet well of course they can go to relay.fm slash parallel where my show about tech and with accessibility sprinkles is you can also hit me up on twitter at shelly s-h-e-l-l-y or the aforementioned ios access for all 
at iosaccessbook.com. Apparently, I'll be doing an update sometime soon. (laughs) Well, that'll be good. That'll be good. And that uh, brings us to the end of this edition of Download. Uh, Stephen Hackett, thank you as always. You bet. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, But until then, we'll be watching the headlines and also apparently the black holes so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.